Are you a new or aspiring woman leader that wants to make a successful leap into leadership? Do you want to grow your confidence and your leadership abilities so that you can become the kind of leader other people want to follow? Welcome to The Leadership Leap, a show that is all about helping women to become more confident about making the leap into leadership. Now, here is your host, Leanne Pico. Hey there, welcome to The Leadership Leap. I'm Leanne Pico, your host. We have such a good show for you today. One of my favorite topics we'll be talking about in just a bit. Uh, But first, I want to say a big thank you to Karen Dietz from Just Story It for an amazing dive into data storytelling last week. Uh, It was super interesting to learn what it is and what it's not. We use, uh, the term is used a lot. And so um, have a listen to the show to find out what it, um, how it's best used. Brendan Schneider was also here and he was sharing some great strategies to storify your job search. Story is a very powerful tool to help you find just the right job. So have a listen by clicking the link on the show page or download in your favorite podcast provider. So today we're going to continue with our discussion about job searching, particularly in the COVID-19 era. Um, A lot of places are opening up and that's um, good news. Not so good. I don't know. (laughs) We don't know. We'll see. But the reality is there are still jobs and there are more jobs. And so Gurpreet is here to help us um, develop our top five strategies for interviewing effectively and getting that dream job. But first, we're going to talk about what it means to be political. Actually, what we're going to talk about, what it means to say, I don't want to be political or you're being political. Uh, it, there's a, we're having a time right now where that's being said a lot. So I wanted to do a bit of a dive into that. But I want to share a little something, a little personal experience and professional experience with you to kind of help frame the discussion. So a few years ago, I was running a nonprofit leadership center and we had a complaint come in. Um, I was writing blogs at the time. Well, we all were writing blogs, but I had written a blog and it was November 2016 and Donald Trump had just won the American election. And I wrote a blog about our team and I having no words about the result. Um, We, (laughs) as a team that had been working with marginalized people and we, all of us had been working on the front lines of social justice for our whole professional lives, we were absolutely devastated. Um, And for this moment, I'm not talking about personalities. We're talking about the framing. Um, I think we'll get into that a little bit later as well. I'll talk about it. But for me, as the leader of a multiracial team and an organization that was um, helping organizations, nonprofit organizations, to achieve social change, I felt it was really important to take a stand. I'm going to share what I wrote. So I wrote, We wanted to write about something inspirational. We wanted to write about the first woman president. We wanted to write about a big glass ceiling that had been smashed to pieces. We wanted to write about goodness overcoming fear. We wanted to write about our pride in people overcoming prejudice and standing tall against it. We wanted to write about social justice. We wanted to write about not tolerating sexism and moving forward rather than backward. We wanted to write about bridges, not walls, hands holding, not pushing away. We wanted to write about people recognizing that diversity is a strength and seeing inclusion as a core value. We wanted to write about hope and change and abundance because that is what we stand for. But we aren't feeling it this week and we aren't quite ready to find the silver lining should there be one somewhere. 
Next week, we'll get back to our shameless optimism about social change and leadership. But for now, we have no words. So when that blog went out, uh, we received a complaint that we were being too political and that as a leadership center, it was important and not even just important, but the writer, the person complaining said, we rely on you to be air quote neutral. And so that comment has stayed with me ever since. And it really has surfaced in the last little while with um, the uh what's been going on, particularly in the States, but, you know, all the activities um, around Black Lives Matter, but also a lot of the recognition that in all of our countries, there's uh, a lot of racism and a lot of anti-Black racism in particular is what we're talking about in this moment. And so that comment really um, has stayed with me in in the last little while. And I am absolutely honored and delighted to have one of the staff that was with me that day um, and we were comfort eating potato salad just to you know it's important it's an important piece of information (laughs) that's what our team was doing that day anyway she's here to talk with me about what it means to be political and why it's so important right now and to kind of unpick what we meet what happens when we say we don't want to be political so christina saki fio is the principal consultant and owner of boldly inclusive a consulting and training firm specializing in diversity equity and inclusion she's a professional educator strategist and community engagement specialist and she's developed a unique inclusion first approach to designing, implementing, and evaluating complex diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Uh, Christina has an MBA and MA, and she's a certified Canadian inclusion professional. And I've had the pleasure of not only being her leader, but also working with her as a partner in uh, her consultancy. And she's been doing amazing work, including a cultural audit that um, we, we deliver within companies and help them to kind of listen and learn to see what's happening before they start jumping in and making big decisions about how they're going to change. Christina, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Leanne. I had, I don't have potato salad today, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought we could hang out with Voice America instead, which is just as good. It's funny because I have been thinking about potato salad a lot more lately, and I'm wondering if it's like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> You're being triggered. You're being triggered for potato salad. <laughs> so, Christina, let's get into it. Um, you know, so thank you. And you, you're uh, obviously for those of you who listen to the show. Christina's um, segment each month is the Inclusion Zone, and we're having a bit of a special show today to kind of address this issue. So tell us, what does it mean to be political? What do you think people are talking about when they say that? Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating question, uh, you know, this whole idea of what it is to be political, especially because so many of us in the Western world, at least, um, so many of us have grown up saying that it's impolite to talk to politics or religion, right? Many of us yes. have heard that in the workplace, you know, around family and things along those lines. It's better to keep the peace. Right. So, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that ultimately a lot of us, first thing we think of is the big P politics. Right. So we think mostly about party affiliations, who you support in in your different polls, you know, whether you're for centralized or decentralized governments, um, how taxes are spent, legislation Mm. is a big one. So I think that often when we think about politics, that's the first thing we think about. Yeah, but you know, um, and choosing a side. So, mm-hmm. Christina, can yeah. I just jump in there? And also, and especially right now, we also think about choosing yeah. a side. 
Mm-hmm. Right, like that, and that—that's—it's inherent in people's idea of what it means to be political now, too. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. I think that yeah, we're in a very interesting space where you know it's really about choosing a side, and op- often there's a dichotomy, especially again within our context. There's a dichotomy between you know one side versus the other. It's very rarely, rarely that there's yeah. um, a middle way, even within yes. you know the Canadian system, right? Yeah, so, um, for sure. Yeah, I think it's a big part of the puzzle. Yeah. So Sorry, I, I jumped in there. Like, so you're going to talk about the other part of being political. Yes, of course. Yeah, so um, there's a big P, right? Um, but, you know, until recently, I would say that, you know, it's always been taboo. I think we're starting to become a little bit more comfortable with that now. Um, but the other side of that is that, you know, there's a small P, and this is the P that we're actually more comfortable sharing. So our small P politics is, you know, these are the politics that inform our everyday decisions and our everyday choices. So whether we eat meat or whether we're vegetarian or whether we're vegan, right, whether we buy only ethically sourced goods, um, which charities we give to, what causes we support. So these are all things that inform our little P politics, right? But what's really interesting here is that when we talk about what, what it means to be political, we have these two really clear definitions of, of what it is, but we also have very two, di- two different treatments of how we exercise these politics, right? Which is absolutely fascinating because on one hand, you have this set of politics, um, you know, our big P politics, which are very personal, and we hold, hold them close to us. And then we have these small P politics, which we, you know, which we are a little bit more proud to kind of share with the world. So that's why I find this whole conversation about, well, it's not really, you know, polite to be be political so fascinating because we actually are very comfortable talking about certain issues that are political, but others we tend to kind of retreat from. I I agree, but I also think that people don't tend to frame things like you've you've done such a good job in, in creating those two definitions, but I'm not sure with the small P stuff, people think of that as political. So I'm going to just pull on one of your examples, like who we who we donate to, what organizations we donate to, you know, from a a kind of philanthropy perspective, the the narrative about that would be, this is what I care about. These are the this is what people need. I am feeling good about helping. But we might not always be aware that actually our belief system is what drives that behavior. And so for some people, they won't, you know, they'll never give to Planned Parenthood. Other people are very comfortable, um, you know, donating a tithe to their church every week, but wouldn't give to a homeless charity working with Muslims, for example. So you've got like a lot of the stuff that, and again, generalizations, we're not trying to generalize, I'm just giving some examples of where sometimes we frame the things we do as our good behavior or our, our, I'm not good, I was going to use the word activism, that's the wrong word here. (laughs) It's about, uh, you know, it's about how showing we care. And so I think some people would say, that's not me being political, and they would be really quite upset to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, I think that's what, you know, is so interesting about this conversation is that we don't often frame, you know, or we don't often like embrace the small P politics in this conversation. But here's the thing on the flip side of that, you know, we're talking about like a certain Western context in many other spaces in the world. And even here within, you know, Western societies, when you are 
representing a, a marginalized community, you don't have the option to say big P, small P, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to be political and you have to, um, in many ways, um, be able to embrace that, um, that overlap between those two spaces. You're, 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 it's, it becomes your, um, the choices that you make, right? And the choices that are made around you are all one and the same, right? And they all well, come together yes. to form your experience. For sure. And one of the things that I always say to people, and the reason why at the start of the show, I said this is one of my favorite topics because I am, I'm very loud and vocal and I always have been on this stuff. I can give you the references for my high school friends who, you know, would sometimes roll their eyes when I had another presentation on homophobia or racism. (laughs) So I've been speaking out for a long time. Um, But I, one of the things that I often say is you don't, you get to choose to be political because you're not affected by politics. And so one of the, the pieces for me is kind of thinking about you know, that's where the privilege comes in. And so when people are just like, oh, um, you know, I don't know what you're talking about in privilege. Well, just being able to say, I, I don't like to talk about politics or I don't like being political is a privilege because it means you're not being impacted on a daily basis, just like you just shared. Exactly. Yeah. And I see it the exact same way. I always think about it this way, right? Being political, right? It's, it's a conversation about power. Right. It's a conversation like politics at its very basic definition is a conversation about power and how it's used to, you know, distribute resources, um, you know, to, uh, you know, make decisions on behalf of. So ultimately, politics is about power. Right. But when we get to power, we also have that ability to then start to think about what does this look like when you have certain groups who have power to also exercise their privilege. Right. And if you can exercise your privilege, you can exercise your privilege for others. You can exercise your privilege against others or you could exercise your privilege by not acting at all. Right. So mm-hmm. just like you said, mm-hmm. there's this whole piece there around being able to leverage that 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 um, privilege to be able to say, you know, I don't talk politics <laughs> is itself a privilege. Yeah. It's something that you can have the choice to do, whereas, you know, as we we're saying earlier, For many people, it's not an option to separate their politics from their personal life, you know, their personal, uh, their personal public or any other area of their life. It's very much ingrained in, um, you know, their, their experiences. For sure. And then also you just um, twigged me on to something that I was thinking about earlier when I was preparing for the show was also the other part of it is, is that even for those of us who are in the, in like kind of are quite comfortable small politics and or you know, the reality is that there's a continuum of being political and those that have positions in the big P politics world are the ones making the decisions. And so they still have small P. They still have their own value systems and their things they care about and things that they want to see in the world. And so they're the ones on the front lines of enacting that. And so that's why it's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so dangerous to just opt out and say, I don't, I don't want to, you know, but also, Christine, do you not think we've been conditioned? Like, we've been so conditioned, and I see it a lot in, like, the boomer generation, particularly. Uh, There's an entire thing since the 60s where we've been told not to talk religion or politics. Like, there's a whole conditioning piece that's gone around with this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would definitely say so. Um, 
but then at the same time, I also think about, you know, I kind of go back to that whole idea of like the personal and the public, right? And, you know, I think about, I think about like civil rights movements or, you know, I think about like the, um, post, you know, post-colonialism in Africa, right? Given I am African. So, you know, that's something that's also at the top of my mind, but all those things happening at that same time in the sixties. So affecting those same generations, you know, like the, the personal is the political in those cases for people who were fighting, right? So there's yes. a conditioning that's happening, but it's a conditioning for who. And even, you know, so kind of enriching this conversation we're having about privilege, right? What is the purpose <laughs> of mm-hmm. saying that we're not having these conversations in these spaces? There's a clear purpose for those who have to have those conversations, but why is it? that we see, you know, having those conversations as being impolite or taboo or social faux pas. Yeah. And it's, I'm just going to call it out. So, you know, white women, and I am one, um, are particularly, um, it, it's so interesting because we're, we're having a moment too. We're making a lot of phone calls that we shouldn't be making. Um, <laughs> just like some really... Unbelievable, not unbelievable. <clears throat> I say that from privilege too. Um, but it's amazing that I, I hear it a lot from white women who, in fact, uh, could be better allies uh, and have been marginalized too in in a lot of ways in the workforce. Um, you know, we're, it, and it's it, it really makes me sad because I have to say as an early woman's movement kind of, you know, I did a lot of women's work in the um, 90s, for example, and it, we were we were allies in, in, you know, with people of color, like it was kind of like a strength in numbers thing where, um, and I don't know where it happened that we got divided or whether we were maybe even ever together because, you know, we are white and have privilege, but um, I'm just going to call it out and say that, you know, I see a lot of white women wanting to be better allies uh, and at the same time saying, I don't want to be political though. So mm-hmm. like, how can, how can we be better allies for people who are marginalized when we're not willing to go there in terms of this conversation and be uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, and, and that's another really great question. And it's been something that's been on my mind as well for the last little bit too. Um, you know, recently it's come up um, in a conversation that I had and so, you know, I guess the question that was, that was asked in that conversation was, can you be an ally without wading into politics? And I think that um, there are two answers to that. I think in theory, it's possible to grow your allyship, right? Um, and even allyship, I would put in, in closed, um, you know, inverted comments, commas, because uh, ultimately, you know, the idea of who is an ally is conferred by those you're in solidarity with, right? So you can only strive to be an ally. So I think it's possible to grow, right? But in practice, I think that, you know, it can't really be done effectively without being political. So, you know, as I've been kind of pondering this question, what, you know, an analogy came to me and, and it was, you know, I'll bring it back to the schoolyard for a moment, but I was thinking about like, if you've ever known a kid who's been bullied, right, you probably know how hard it is for these kids to make friends, to build trusting relationships, right? So, you know, they are experiencing trauma and destabilization on a regular basis. Now, there might be others who look at this and say, you know what, that's not right. I'll check in on them. I'll check in on them in private. After the rest of the group is gone, I'm going to check in and just let them know that I don't think that this is all right. 
that said, like, it's a good move to make and, you know, hopefully the start of growing allyship. But at the end of the day, this child who's been bullied is still a little bit uncertain, right? They're not going to be as vulnerable with you. They're not going to be as trusting with you. So you still need to build that relationship. So, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about this analogy in terms of this whole conversation about politics, because it's not that I'm trying to, like, infantilize, you know, marginalized communities or saying that we need to be treated like children. But ultimately, it's like, this is what it looks like to be, be on the outside. And this is something that I think many people, if they haven't experienced themselves, they've seen, right? So this whole conversation then about, you know, being political, ultimately, you have communities who have been marginalized, they've been excluded, they've been other, they've been victimized, right? They're experiencing micro and macro aggressions, as we've seen. Um, so it's really difficult for them to trust people, um, you know, who are showing solid, who are showing their solidarity only in private spaces or who can retreat back into their privilege when things become uncomfortable and make a stand. So you're, you know, I don't feel comfortable talking politics or I don't feel comfortable being political, right? So ultimately, I feel like it needs to be, um, you know, allyship really needs to be tied very closely to politics, to one's politics, especially if you're going to be able to be a good ally given that allyship is earned, if that makes sense. I, I needed to kind of make sense of, of it, but there was a lot that came out of that question, and it's really been something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, but, yeah, it's really difficult for me to say, if I don't make a stand, that you can trust me, you know, as being, you know, in solidarity with you. It's very difficult to be able to do that. It is, and thank you for that. That, that was a very helpful analogy, and I would also say, add to it, in saying that um, maybe one of the things that uh, I was just thinking about when you were talking about that is how the school deals with it, with bullying, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. what actually forms children's ideas about what a system looks like and whether it's helpful for them or not. And mm-hmm. so it's a really great analogy because it actually gives us some perspective on, on a range of things. And so, you know, for those, uh, and I'm going to just call out the parents, particularly white parents who have had a kid who's bullied, you should be able to get this, right? Because often we, we, uh, we're, uh, we're dissatisfied with how schools have dealt with it or maybe our board of education doesn't have a great policy or there are blanket rules that don't foster better behavior. Um, So there's a whole bunch of stuff we can pull out of that analogy, which can help us kind of feel a sense of understanding and empathy for what marginalized communities are experiencing right now. So thank you for that analogy. That was very helpful. Yeah. And and I think that's, you know, for me, you know, in the conversations that I have, I think that's the missing piece is that for many people, they kind of get it in theory, and they're also trying to grapple with what they've learned and, you know, doing that unlearning, right? But then also yes. not really having, like, a full sense of what this actually looks and feels like for people who are on the margins, right? So, you know, yeah. concerns about, well, you know, why are people angry? Why aren't they, you know, dealing with this in, in, in a certain way versus another way? Um, you know, is this, is this ultimately... Um, you know, just anger. I mean, we could talk about it even ter- in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, the protests, right? The whole conversation about protests versus rioting and things along yes. those lines, which themselves are very loaded. Um, you know, I think that it's really necessary for people to be able to actually see and feel 
and relate in order to understand what it is and what's at stake. And in so doing, you know, my hope is that people will then start to say, you know what, now I understand why it's important to, to stand up, um, you know, and, and now I can also see why it's, it's um, you know, it's not just about me and my discomfort. We have to be, you know, we have to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable at the end of yes. the day. Right. Yes. So, yes. yeah. So I think yeah. It's a big yeah. Super important. And in organizations and in our private relationships, because I know we talked about the small P, but sometimes in our private relationships, we are more frightened to kind of, you know, we're sitting at the dinner table and somebody makes a comment. What do we do? You know, and mm-hmm. often it's say nothing, let it go rather than yes. addressing it, because what will happen if I address it? Oh, no. Now we're going to have conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, and so now what? I might be the outcast. Now I might be the and I might on be the, the yes, for sure, for sure. And I don't want that. And mm-hmm. I don't want that. And so then we're holding on to that. And so then, you know, later though, maybe we're going. Oh, I wish I, you know, stood up. And you know, it's funny because even in the bullying context, going back to that analogy for a minute, uh, I know my son at four years old understood what a bystander was. Mm, we are taught beautiful. what a yeah. bystander mm-hmm. is and what it means to do nothing when mm-hmm. other people are being hurt. And yet we continually do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of unlearning that we need to do. Like to me, it just, it makes me happy to hear that, you know, that he's, he's had these experiences from a young age and that the seeds are being sowed, you know, around, you know, being part of a community, being being a friend, being an ally, like these are great things for young people to start learning. But at some point down the road, just like you said, actually, in terms of extending the analogy, the school system is itself a system, right? Um, and, and there you kind of learn what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, um, you know, what it is to be aligned with power versus what it's not, right? And even though you might have these these mixed messages, right, you get to a point where you're going to start to make decisions over what works best for you. Um, and those are also reinforced by society, reinforced by our families. Um, so it requires a lot, like I'm not going to, you know, lie about it. It requires a lot of courage in order it to does. be able to lean into that, that, that sense of, you know, who I am as a political, you know, person um, and, and what this means in terms of being a, a person who is in solidarity with marginalized groups. It takes a lot of courage. It does. And also, and as you say, you know, the the challenge is, yes, it's great that my son learned that at four, but the unlearning came from seeing the systems let let the exactly. learning down all the way along. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're 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 told one thing and and understand it clearly, and then all of a sudden you look at the world, you you experience the world and you go, Oh, it's not like that. Right. So so, you know, and then it's confusing, right? Because if you do stand up, you get in trouble or yeah. whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know. So um, so let's talk about leadership here um, because, you know, for me, and we've got about probably about five minutes left to chat about okay. this, but I, I, I want to make sure that I get your perspective on, um, you know, I started with a story about my leadership and when, you know, people didn't appreciate me kind of stepping out into that space. I didn't care. It didn't bother me uh, because I knew it was more important to me to have, to make a stand. Um, But how can this being political, how can we embrace it 
if you want to be an inclusive leader, you're going to have to make a stand. You're going to have to be courageous sometimes. So how can we do that in a way that enables us to um, kind of contribute and be part of the dialogue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, as I listen to, you know, your introduction and, you know, it, it takes me right back <laughs> to that moment. Yeah, I know, I right? Think the one thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, we talk about bringing your whole self to work, right? This is you bringing your whole self to work. This yes. is you modeling it, right? Yes. So it's saying that this is these. This is who I am as a leader, right? So being very clear about defining yourself, understanding, um, you know, the type of leader that you want to be, and then really sticking to it and bringing that whole element of yourself to work. And sometimes that does yeah. require bringing your politics. Um, in terms of some more tangible pieces, though, I think um, another way of, uh, of uh, you know, kind of infusing, infusing our leadership with this element of, of politics, I think is, you know, again, just as we were saying earlier, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think that, you know, we, we tend to, especially when we're talking about um, otherness and inclusion and, and all of these different topics, we tend to kind of layer uh, you know, we we tend to kind of layer them on with like other elements of difficulty and challenges. But as leaders, we're always making difficult decisions. We are mm-hmm. not always making the popular decisions, right? So if we're able to be uncomfortable in those spaces, then I think that it's possible that we can also be, you know, uncomfortable in these spaces as well. I think it's part of what it is to be a leader. And um, I think and it's I think part of what it is to oh, be yeah. inclusive, Oh, sorry, Christy, I just wanted to jump in. in particular. I, because because we have to be willing to be uncomfortable, but also to be uh, seen to be trying, doing something, mm-hmm. uh, making mistakes, failing sometimes. Yes. yes, it's absolutely modeling it. I think that's what you, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. I think it comes down to being able to model it. It's um, inclusive leadership, but inclusive leadership also sometimes means being comfortable saying, I don't know, actually, I'm, I'm also learning this as you are, right? Yeah. Um, people are seeking leadership from us, but we can also lead by example. Okay, so can I get, because I also, yeah, and so tell me a bit about the work that you're doing, because what I really wanted to pull out too is that, the, you know, leaders, you don't have to do this alone, and that, you know, um, it is worth investing and in getting some support. So what are you doing these days, Christina, in terms of the kind of work you're offering and, and what do you what are companies looking for? Yeah, I think there are two things that have been coming up uh, recently over the, the past, you know, days and weeks. I think the first is, um, you know, wanting to get some, like, on real-time coaching, right? So just-in-time coaching to understand how to have, meaningful conversations in their organizations. So that's something that I'm doing with, uh, with organizations, whether that looks like, you know, a, a training, whether that's, you know, a, a master chat, whatever that looks like, I'm, I'm able to kind of provide them with the support on a right time, right, you know, right place basis, um, and just sort of ease into their existing systems in order to do so. Um, and the, I think the second piece that we're also doing is, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, the cultural audits, right? And I think the cultural audits are a great first step in being able to understand what actually is happening in our organization. 
What does othering look like? You know, why aren't people feeling, um, you know, included when we're making, when we believe that we've created this space of inclusion? What are the gaps? What are the opportunities? Um, and we have a really great, like you and I, we have worked really well together on previous audits. Yeah. Um, but it's a top-to-down audit looking at everything from documents to having conversations with staff members to, um, you know, creating some some really great uh, tools and resources so that the learning can also be ongoing as well, right? Because any kind of work that, you know, involves allyship must be ongoing and constantly growing and reflecting. So we want to make sure that we're not leaving people, um, you know, alone to to deal with these and, and to kind of navigate them. We want to make sure that they feel supported. So the tools are helpful as well as coaching. Absolutely. And we use a story approach in the culture yes. audit, cultural audit, just mm-hmm. to, um, so we can find people's stories, share them and find the insights because stories are mm-hmm. where you're going to be able to hear what's really happening. Okay. So exactly. Yes. Chris, how can they get in touch? How can people get in touch with you to work with you, Christina? Um, they can get in touch with me through my website, boldlyinclusive.co. So you can go through there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I'm actually about to go on this afternoon, so I'll be checking in. Um, But I I try to check in regularly there as well. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for the great conversation today. It's always fun. And uh, I I hope to talk to you soon. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of uh, today's show. Good luck. Thanks, Christina. And thank you for your important work. So now I'd like to um, welcome Gurpreet Kaurman. She's our HR superhero. And Gurpreet is an HR professional with 14 plus years of human resources experience who now runs her own HR consulting firm, HR Superhero. And Gurpreet helps small and medium-sized organizations to attract and retain talent by day and by night. She's a career strategist coach. Gurpreet, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leon. Nice to be back. (laughs) It's nice to hear your lovely voice again. I'm so glad you could do this because um, we'd started a conversation a couple of weeks ago about job searching during COVID. And so I thought it would be important. We talked a lot about researching uh, jobs and kind of what goes in your resume. So I thought it'd be nice. Let's talk about interview. Yes, definitely. Without interviews, oh. you can't get a job. No, exactly. So tell. So we're going to, Gurpreet has uh, very helpfully taken the time to put together her top five strategies for nailing your interview and, and being really effectively uh, interviewing for the job that you're really wanting. So what's number one, Gurpreet? So number one is, going back to basics, is researching the company. I know this sounds cliche, but... 97% of uh, candidates that I've interviewed, this is the one area that I've found no one does. Never research the company. So you want to thoroughly research the company. Just go beyond, not just the website. You want to go beyond the company website, Google their name. You also want to uh, look at news articles if there's any, social media also, my favorite is Glassdoor reviews. You want to read reviews on the company. You can get a lot of great insights on the company uh, on Glassdoor as well. So that's tip number one. Do a thorough understanding of the company and go beyond the their website. My number two tip is... Oh, hang on, Gurpreet. 
Sorry, Gurpreet, can I just jump in there? Sorry, I just want to jump in there because I think it's really important. And one thing that people often don't understand about the research part is it's it the reason why we do you need to do it is so you can ask great questions uh, when you're there. And also, you know, so there, it's partly to decide whether it's a company you want to work for, but also, you know, showing knowledge of the company is really key for a company because I know when I was hiring, if people didn't ask targeted questions about the organization, I knew they didn't do their research. And what it said to me was they weren't interested in the company. They just wanted a job. That's funny you're saying that because that's my last tip. (laughs) Oh, never mind. Okay, number two. (laughs) I jumped ahead. I'm sorry, everybody. Okay, I want to add on to your point uh, about showing interest. So this is my go-to question. My first go-to question when I'm interviewing candidates is, tell me what you know about us. And right, right. there, I can rule out the candidate because 97% right. of candidates actually don't read anything about yeah. the company. Yeah, nice. So That's perfect. you just kind of like eliminated your own self. Yes, yes. Good for you. That's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you now. <laughs> That's a brilliant question. I'm going to just step back and stop jumping in. I'm excited to talk to you. So what's your number two tip? My number two tip is studying the interviewer. And this is uh, one area that I think a lot of candidates can benefit is you, uh, 99% of the time you'll know who's going to be interviewing you. And if you don't have this information, ask and get it. So what you want to do is we have a great tool that all of us are on these days. It's called LinkedIn. It's really easy to go and pop up their name and go find the person working in the company that's going to be interviewing you. You want to basically, um, it's, it's not like an extensive long research here. You're just going to study their LinkedIn profile from start to finish and try to draw some similarities and build a connection with them. This will help you. In the interview, and you know, in the beginning, it's just, you know, small talk. It will help you break the ice because you know something about them. And you can right. start a conversation based on similarities or a connection by just studying the LinkedIn profile. Okay. So that's my tip number two. Uh, my tip number three is really big. And this is where I think 100% job seekers fail to do. Um, I'm saying 100%, it seems like a hard number, high number, but it is. Practicing interview questions. Many people do not actually take the time to practice interview questions. So what I'm going to do, my tip is actually go beyond that. What you want to do is you want to videotape yourself answering questions. We live in a world where everything is available to us uh, by, by our fingertips, right? We have phones, we have Google, use it. Google typical ask questions based on the job you're going to be interviewing for. Also, what you want to do is prepare your answers. Use the STAR method, S-T-A-R, situational, tasks, action, results. Okay, so use the STAR method to answer the question, videotape yourself, be your own critic. Also, I want to extend this a little bit here is this is number one mistake I see people making in interviews is they're answering questions based on what they think the end user wants to hear, the interviewer. You Mm -hmm. don't want to answer questions by assuming what you think 
the other person wants to hear. You want to be yourself. You want to sound like you, not someone that's trying too hard to impress somebody. You don't want to sound robotic. And I understand there's tons of information on Google, and this is where I think a lot of people get lost is they're following methods online that they're finding and then they're going into the interview and kind of like being so robotic versus just having a conversation. So you're when you're answering questions, you also want to have conversations. Get the other person to engage with you in your answer. So being yourself and being relaxed is the best way to go the interview and that will only happen if you actually spend some time practicing and videotaping your answers and that makes great sense and I think can I just um I wanted to say something about that because one of the things I'm and and you know this is why I love chatting with you and working with you you always identify that stuff that um you know is real and and is not it's it's not just about you know, job search strategies. This is about something that is fundamentally a problem for a lot of people, which is to not practice. And and by extension, what you're saying is, you know, I, I love that you said, um, you know, answering what you think they want to hear. And I wanted to add to that, which is listen to what they're actually asking, which you might be, um, am I jumping ahead on a tip now again? No, no, or actually, are we okay? I, I no, you know no, just the listening, actually, right? Yeah, I missed that part, but I always teach in my boot camp is you will go a long way if you develop your listening skills because mm-hmm. you got to listen to what the question is. Yeah, so, and that's the thing is that, and I wanted to link that up with the practicing. So, the practicing, and I've seen it with people, like I've worked with people and supported them on public speaking and storytelling. And so, sometimes what happens is people get so caught up when they practice so being like when you practice it's about your your presence and about the kinds of things they might say maybe drafting a few stories little anecdotes or whatever but not getting hooked on the things you wanted to say because I have seen people then go and just say what they wanted to say and it's a disconnect between what was actually asked so practice but bring bring it forward into the actual interview uh, rather than getting, you know, we're not pra- what you're not saying is practice so that you can, you know, bring exactly what you said into the interview. Yeah. So the thing with the listening skills is, you touched on a great point, is listening skills. And, and the reason I can talk about this is because I do interviews on the right. other side of the table, right? I've been doing it for 14 years. And one of the biggest common mistakes I see when people are delivering answers is not listening to what the question is and then start rambling on. And they end up talking way too much and not answering the question. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's and, then, and that's yeah for sure. Because and then you can't score scared. them. You can't like, give uh, them a score. <laughs> no, right? Like, right. So yeah. even when I'm doing mock interviews with my clients, I like I record it and then they can watch it. They can see all the mistakes they're making. And the biggest mistake when I'm prepping people for interviews is is this. Talking, not listening to actually what the question was, and then answering, start to answer the question, but then they started talking too much that they totally forgot what the question was. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. So listening yes. skills go, will go back with practice. And the thing with practicing is the more you practice, 
the less you're going to talk too much. Yeah. Like the biggest yeah, thing you'll hone people it. do is the talking too much, right? So yeah. just being practiced. To pra- also, the, the other thing, I know I'm expanding a little bit on this, is that because it's a, such an important thing to do, you do not know what you're going to be asked in the interview. That's it right there. Thank you. Yeah. And it's it, it's so important that you can try, you can do all that you can practice, you can prepare, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You you just have to be ready for surprises. Yeah. And by practicing, you've kind of like opened your mind to different uh, situations that you've dealt with in your career, positions, right. and stuff like that. That's all the practice is helping you do. It's kind of like be able to think on your feet when you're in the interview because of all the amount of practice you've done. Uh, Fourth tip is being prepared and ready to go. This tip is really important is because due to COVID-19, we are having uh, a lot of video interviews. And I've been doing video interviews even before COVID-19. And typical mistake I see candidates making with video interviews is not um, not being prepared before the interview is happening. So what I mean by that is you not you you didn't download the application, you didn't test the application to make sure that everything's working. So you end up if you do if you don't do this, then you end up being late right. to your video interview. So you don't want to be late, and you also want to be ready to go. So 24 hours before or two hours before, I like the 24 hours, just you better be safe than sorry, right? You don't want to be panicking last minute, something's not working. So typically speaking, you're going to have video interviews right now, it's COVID-19. You want to make sure you follow proper instructions given by the company, download the application, make sure everything's working, your mic's working. A lot of the applications will allow you to test it. You also want to designate a quiet spot, sit in good lighting. The person should be able to see you. Make sure you're not sitting uh, behind the window, right? So you got to test all these things out. And the good thing about video interviews is you can test all this stuff. You'll know where the light is hitting. So you want to plan for this at least 24 hours so not scrambling the day of. And you want to make sure you dress to impress. I understand it's yeah. a video interview, but yeah. they're still watching you. They are. And you know what? It's so funny you say that because I have, you know, we, we talk a lot. We make the joke about um, just dressing the top half. Um, so just to, yeah. here's a tip from me, which is that's cool. Dress the top half, except that you may... Um, have to stand up at some point and go get something or whatever. So just if you're in an interview, just like do the whole outfit. Just do the whole outfit. Invest in the pants or the skirt or whatever you're going to wear because I've seen it happen and it's, um, you know, it it throws people off because they weren't prepared for that. Yeah, I I can see that happening. (laughs) So that's me on the shallow side offering my tips. I'm I'm in the in the shallow zone there. (laughs) But these like be prepared and ready to go. It's just you're being mindful of things. Yes, and also you're putting your best foot forward. Mm -hmm. And feeling um, good. Yes. Yeah, and you're not. You can be less panicking. You can be less anxious. Uh, less restful on you too, right? Imagine 
you didn't download all this stuff and then last minute you're scrambling through to download. You don't know how long the download's going to be, especially during the day when everybody is on it. Like everybody yeah, knows the yeah. internet's slow during the day, right? Sure, so you want to sure. take, the, uh, this is best practice, is always be prepared, ready to go. Hiccups yeah. will happen, but if you're prepared, at least the chances of hiccups happening is a little bit less minimized, right? So last tip is, Ask questions, <laughs> uh, yeah. what Leon touched on earlier. And I see when I'm interviewing, 97% of candidates, probably 98% of candidates, when I, at the end of the interview, when I'm done asking questions, I always say, so, do you have questions for me? Typically, no, you've always, oh, no, you've, you've answered all my questions. And what that tells me is that you are not, your career is not important to you. You are not invested. You also don't, like, you're just looking for a job, right? Companies are not looking for candidates who just want a job. They're looking for people that are also invested in their career, that that also want to make a sound decision, right? Interview is a two-way street. Never think it's a one-way street. Also, you want to ask questions so you can make a sound decision if this company and this role is exactly what you want. Yes, Last absolutely. thing you want to do is get a job a month, two months, or three months be like, oh, this wasn't what I wanted, right? Like getting a job is a lot of work, a lot of work. Yes. So take that, go that extra mile, ask questions. And when I say ask questions, I don't mean just ask questions, oh, tell me about the role, tell me about the company, these things that you already have, but ask smart questions that are important to you so that you can make a sound decision. Like, for example, ask about what's the five-year uh, growth plan. That will a little bit give you an insight of, you know, what does that look for you in growth opportunity-wise? How? What are some of the challenges that you can face coming into a new position or uh, in the position? What's their onboarding process like? Yeah. Things that are important to you. Yes. you got to ask. Yes. And sets the, it sets the... Um I think it's important because it sets the intention for you as an employee and says, these are the things that are important to me. And so I I actually think it's funny because a lot of people think that if they ask too many questions, then they might be, you know, they might not be liked when in actual fact, and I'm not saying ask 20 questions, but when you ask questions that you just outlined, which are so kind of like, you know, I'm checking to see if this is the kind of place I want to be in, then that increases the respect. Yeah, it does. I love when candidates ask me questions. I love it. Mm -hmm. I get it. Some people may not, but the thing is, it's expected that you should ask questions, right? You should go ready to ask questions. I'm not saying exactly as you said. I'm not saying ask 20 questions. Hey, the golden rule, my rule of thumb is if I ask you 10 questions, as an interviewer, you can ask me 10 questions. It's an equal field, right? Yeah. And if you find that the company, uh, the person that's interviewing you, is not happy that you're asking questions, guess what? That's a red flag. You don't want to work for a company like that. Yeah, right? exactly. also telling you, your experience in the interview will tell you how the company is going to treat you. So don't be yeah. so desperate to get a job. Look for, for sure. red flags as well, right? One question oh, you yes. definitely want to ask before you leave the interview, there's one question I highly recommend 
you ask before you leave the interview is, do you have any concerns about my ability to perform this role? The Love reason it. you want to ask this question is, let's say I'm interviewing you and I may have some doubts. I'm not going to be forth willing and saying, hey, you know, I have some doubts about you, right? But it's yeah. going to be in back of my head. But if you ask me this question, and then I can be honest and be like, you know what? I do have a little bit of a concern, and then now I'm going to tell you yeah, what my concern is. so good. Now you got the opportunity to address it. Yes, of so good. And this person had all these um, concerns, right? Now yes. it gives you the opportunity to address it, but just be mindful when they are being open you don't want to go into reactive and defensive mode. Stay sure. calm, stay composed, and be strategic. Because you want to, you want to come like in that. What that does is, as an employer, I will go. Oh, one, they like feedback, and they can hear the feedback, and they can address it, and that's a tick, 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 right? So yeah. good. Thank you so much, Gurpreet. I loved all your tips. They were awesome. Unfortunately, we're going to have to finish the show soon. So I want to make sure that we get the your contact details in. How can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you? Uh, the best way to actually get in touch with me is LinkedIn. My name is Gurpreet Corman. Uh, dash HR superhero. So even if you type in HR superhero, I'll probably pop up. Uh, the only one and only by that name. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is through LinkedIn. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And and Gurpreet is often running boot camps, and she offers loads of uh, ways for you to interact with her and, and get and get her help. Thanks, Gurpreet. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Leon. Have a good day. You too. Okay, well, I wanted to say a thank you to Christina and Gurpreet for a great show. It's been um, such a pleasure working with them today and uh, on really important topics that are kind of coming up for a lot of people. I think that, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, people who are out of work and and, and or worried about getting work. And so Gurpreet's um, advice around how to find the job that you want and that is of value to you is super important. Don't go into your job search desperate. You're valuable. Find the place that is a good fit for you. And also a big thank you to Christina for always, she's always willing to go into those conversations with me as we call it, go there and talk about what it means to be political, what it means to, you know, um, If we say we don't want to be political, we're essentially opting out. So get in there. And I'm also going to let you know that we're on a little bit of a hiatus for the Leadership Leap. So this is the final show for now. And I want to say a big thank you to all of the guests that have been on the show, as well as the fabulous coaches and consultants, Gurpreet Karaman, Christina Sacchifio, Michelle Bevan, and Susan Crawford, and Heather Nelson. If you go back into our um, show page, there are so many great shows, so much great actionable advice, resources, cool conversations and um, thank you from me I appreciate you being here and hope to see you soon thank you for joining us this week for the leadership leap Liam Pico invites you to tune in for another engaging program next Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel we'll help you make a successful leap into leadership 